All interviews presented on the Remedy Revolution podcast are designed to provide information and inspiration only. Guests of the podcast may present opinions and anecdotes which are solely their own. And as always, before beginning any treatment protocol, please consult with your preferred medical provider. Welcome to the Revolution. My name is Erin, and today's guest is somebody who I actually just heard speak recently on a topic that was very intriguing to me, something that I have been doing myself in order to combat some of the effects that I had after having COVID, natural COVID, three times. And so as someone with a history of, you know, Epstein-Barr and various autoimmune conditions, it did affect me quite uh, profoundly, especially with my mitochondria production, my hormones, and all of those kinds of things. So I'm really excited to have Dr. James Neuenschwander, or aka Dr. New, probably because the last name is a bit of a mouthful. So welcome, Dr. New. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Erin. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you got started with this crazy thing that's kind of new and people talking about it, um, methylene blue. Well, I mean, I've I've been treating kids on the autism spectrum, chronically ill uh, adults, people injured by vaccines, people with mitochondria disorders. So, you know, we're always looking for you know, what can we do? Because it's not like medicine has great answers to any of these problems. So uh, you you pretty much always have to go outside the box. So traditionally, I knew about methylene blue because I, I am board certified in emergency medicine, although I don't practice anymore. But every emergency room has what's called a, a cyanide antidote kit. And in that is an ampule of methylene blue, because we know you can use methylene blue to rescue somebody from cyanide poisoning. So it treats something called met hemoglobinemia and methylene blue can do that. So, you know, I always knew about methylene blue and, and also when kids get Paxaki, where they get the little ulcers in their mouth, you can actually paint them with methylene blue and like overnight, these things will go away because it's million properties is that it's antiviral. Even with COVID, it's antiviral. So it was always sort of, you know, in the background, not really on my radar. Uh, so one of the things I do is I treat Lyme disease, people with chronic Lyme. And a few years ago, uh, a researcher took a million substances, pretty much everything on the medical formulary, and looked, did they have activity against Lyme and Lyme co-infections? And it turned out, particularly the stationary forms, these forms that are chronic, they don't divide, the antibiotics really don't work all that well on them. And one of the things they found worked, the stationary uh, form of Bartonella and Babesia, which is Lyme, was methylene blue. And so back on my radar, now I'm treating methylene, I'm using methylene blue to treat some of my chronic Lyme patients. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, this works on mitochondria. Why not try it on kids? I mean, as you well know, kids on the spectrum have mitochondria problems. You know, why don't we try it there? And and then, you know, it's just success builds on success. And, you know, I start researching this and it's like, oh my God, there's all this information about methylene blue. And mind you, it's like, I think the oldest prescription drug that we use in the United States, we've been using it since I think 1891 or something like that. So, but anyway, right. so it's a long shaggy dog story, but that's sort of how, <laughs> how I ended up with 
Yeah. So what I find so fascinating is that it was originally developed as a dye, right? And then they began using it as a medical dye on on slides, if I'm not mistaken. So what was that origin like? And and how did we evolve to how, you know, we're utilizing methylene blue in, in medical applications now? Anyone that has used a liquid form of methylene blue knows it's a clothing dye. Like, do not spill this stuff. Absolutely. So they, um, uh, this, yeah, it was developed as a clothing dye back in the 1870s, maybe something like that. But uh, at the time, one of the researchers started using it to stain slides. And, and he realized that uh, certain organisms, in particular the malaria parasite, very avidly take up methylene blue. So, you know, he was using it as a marker. Could we, you know, do a blood smear and see if somebody had malaria because the cells would take up the methylene blue much stronger than, you know, just a regular cell. So they would light up on the slide and you could see them. And then, of course, being a lot smarter than me, he said, well, wait a minute. If they're taking up the methylene blue more avidly than a regular cell, maybe we can use methylene blue to treat malaria. Because again, you know, high doses of methylene blue can become toxic for these organisms. And he was, that was really the first medical use of the methylene blue. So I believe it was 1891. And he started using, I think his name was Ehrlich, but he started using methylene blue clinically to treat malaria. And he was successful. And from that, they actually developed some early malaria drugs uh, that later morphed into, you know, some of the drugs we have now. I mean, we don't use methylene blue to treat malaria because we've developed much better drugs, but that was the original indication for methylene blue to treat uh, malaria patients. So, you know, again, it's kind of interesting the way, you know, we develop something for one purpose and then, oh, now we can use it over here. And that's something we learn in medicine. I mean, what is it? 70% of all the drugs we prescribe are off-label. It's not what they were approved for but it turns out they work really well for this stuff over here. So what is it working for? I know we talked a little bit about Lyme disease um, and obviously, you know, you, you work a lot with autism. So what have you seen methylene blue to work on? What, what particular symptoms and conditions, things like that? Right. So, I, I mean, the biggest thing I think for most of my patients is it just helps with fatigue, right? So it works on mitochondrial function and and the reason why it's an antidote for cyanide poisoning and rotenone poisoning and a few other things is those things poison what's called the electron transport chain. That's how the mitochondria make energy for the cells. So, and there's complex one, complex two, complex three, complex four, and then you actually make energy at complex five. So all these poisons work on one, two, three, and the early part of four. Methylene blue comes in and actually donates electrons, activates complex four, so you're making energy directly from the methylene blue. So one of the first things, and, and I always tell people, don't take it late in the day because it's going to keep you up at night. You know, it's like taking a few shots of espresso. You're gonna, it's going to wake you up. So the biggest thing we use it for is really the fatigue part of it. The other part is mitochondrial dysfunction, and those kind of go hand in hand. But with kids, and again, anybody that's dealt with kids on the autism spectrum knows that, you know, mitochondrial dysfunction is part of autism, whether it is genetic, which is not all that common, the actual mitochondrial, you know, genetic mitochondrial disorders. Uh, that's a few percentage of, of kids with autism. 
But a lot of kids have, you know, we call them SNPs. They're just single variants in the genes in the mitochondrial uh, pathways, and they don't make energy all that well. And then more importantly, most people that have, you know, mitochondrial dysfunction, it, it's actually a type of poisoning. I mean, they're, they're, they have heavy metals or they have pesticides or, or some other compound is interfering with the mitochondria's ability to make energy. Now, this is where when you test kids on the autism spectrum, depending on which testing you're doing, it might be 30% of kids show signs of actual mitochondrial dysfunction. And a lot of it is because they don't detox very well they mm -hmm. can't get rid of those metals they can easily accumulate in their body so if they have exposure you know a, a kid with good detox will just get rid of it a kid on the spectrum is going to accumulate it eventually it gums up the mitochondria they don't make the energy the way they're supposed to and methylene blue really can step in and make a huge difference there it's one of the biggest places we've seen it work and also to help people recover either from long covid or covid vaccine injuries because Part of that also is the energy production. And then the other thing that might account that, I mean, methylene blue has a million properties, but one of the things it does is it promotes this idea called autophagy, which is how an individual cell gets rid of abnormal proteins. So misfolded proteins, chunks of viruses, spike protein, you know, those kinds of things. So one of the theories behind long COVID or COVID vaccine injury is this idea of persistent spike protein, that the spike is, is persisting in the cell. How can the cell get rid of it? Well, one of the ways you can get rid of it is through this process of autophagy and methylene blue promotes that. So we've got, you know, those are right now the two biggest avenues that I'm using methylene blue for. It can help with memory. It can help with mild dementia. It can help with a lot of other things. So it's always something on my radar now. I, you know, again, a few years ago, methylene what? You know, now it's like, you should try methylene blue, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I've been saying the same thing. And, and uh, primarily because the first time I took it, I, I only took a couple of drops and I'd been struggling. I also have Lyme disease. So, um, you know, I, I think that that whole, um, you know, lovely um, combination of predispositions, if you will, um, really did a number on me. And so it was in the afternoon, early afternoon, I received it. And uh, I said, well, I'm just going to try it. So I took a couple of drops. And within about 3040 minutes, my brain fog just totally went away. You know, I felt like everything just lifted, I felt so much better. And it was a bit surprising to me. I didn't think, you know, especially at that low of a dose that there would have, I would, I would have that much of an effect and so immediate, which was um, really surprising. Are you seeing the same thing in your clinical practice? Yeah, it's, it's all over the board. So we, you know, we, we always follow the start low, go slow philosophy when we're treating it. So most of the liquid solutions and, and when I have patients, get powders and mix it up themselves. I mean, these days we're doing a lot of compounding. It's just much easier to get in a capsule. It's not messy. It's it's more problematic for the kids because they don't swallow capsules very well. Right. But if I'm having somebody do the liquid, typically we're mixing up at 1%. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, th that means one, make sure I get this right now, one <laughs> cc is going to be 10 milligrams. All right. So a teaspoon, which is five cc is 50 milligrams. Half a teaspoon is 25 milligrams. A quarter teaspoon is 12 and a half. 
depending on the size of your drop, most of the time it's 15 to 18 drops per cc. So a drop is usually two thirds of a milligram. So if you're doing two or three drops, you're getting a couple milligrams. That's a pretty low dose, but that might be all you need right? You know, when we're doing this IV stuff, rescuing people from sepsis or cyanide poisoning or whatever, we're doing 50 to 100 milligrams and they're doing it like IV push, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, uh, obviously we don't do that at home, but still (laughs) it's got such a huge safety profile. I know I had it in one of my slides, the there's something called an LD50, you know, what's the, what's the dose required to kill 50 percent of the animals you give it to. That's kind of one of the idea, one of the things that tell us how toxic something is. And the LD50 for humans is something like 1500 milligrams per kilo of body weight or some ridiculous. I mean, you'd have to take a dump truck. For <laughs> right. So it's, it's very, very safe. I mean, there are other side effects and, and, you know, I covered that in my talk about things you have to worry about, but you know, you just start low and most people, most adults, I'm managing with 25 milligrams a day. You know, again, if it, if we're talking memory, more advanced dementia, if we're treating Bartonella, then I'm going to push it higher. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had patients as high as three or 400 milligrams a day. Uh, you know, some of my really bad mitochondrial patients, but most people respond very well to 25 milligrams. And the other thing, I, ju- I just want to plug in that one of the properties of methylene blue is that it's photodynamic, meaning that a certain wavelength of light, and this is 660 to 670, this, these are these red light thing, devices that you see out there. That's that's the wavelength that they are. So that wavelength will activate the methylene blue. So even a few drops will become more effective. And you don't necessarily even have to have a red light device. Take your methylene blue and go outside because mm-hmm. that wavelength is in, in sunlight, right? So again, it, it, the photodynamic part of it will make it more effective without necessarily taking on more toxicity from a higher dose. Have you, uh, and and I could be totally wrong on this, but I've read about vitamin C being something that you should also take alongside methylene blue. Would that be accurate? Or what are you seeing with that? The reason behind that is methylene blue, one of its gazillion properties is it's what's called a redox indicator. So oxidation reduction indicator. So in its blue state, it's oxidized. So you can actually take like sodium asorbate or some form of vitamin C, mix it with your methylene blue, and eventually your methylene blue is going to go from blue to clear. All right. That's the point at which it's reduced. For methylene blue to do its magic in the body, it has to be reduced. Now it's reduced in the body by something called NADPH, don't ask me what it stands for. The H is hydrogen. I know that much. <laughs> it's it's a it's a niacin molecule that's important with energy production in the cell. But NADPH is what reduces methylene blue from the oxidized blue form to the reduced clear form. It's that reduced form that you need for all the magic of methylene blue in the body. So when we're talking about mitochondria, all that sort of stuff, we we need that methylene blue in its reduced form. So the idea is if we take something like vitamin C, we'll add to that antioxidant uh, benefit, it'll be easier to reduce the methylene blue. Vitamin C is not NADPH. It's involved with making NADPH, but I don't know if I've got evidence that adding vitamin C to it would help. I don't think it would hurt. And theoretically, I could see why it might be a benefit. Again, my big thing with vitamin C is you can mix it ahead of time and then it's not blue. You know, you're mm-hmm. not staining your teeth and that sort of stuff. 
I just don't know what happens to, you know, when that methylene blue hits the stomach acid, does that oxidize it again? Is that going to survive the digestive process uh, by the time it gets absorbed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on that note, is it um, more effective if you're doing an IV or IV push, or is it something, you know, obviously when certain things go through the digestive tract, they sometimes lose efficacy. So what are you saying with that? All right. So if you're doing it IV, the only reason to do it IV uh, as a push is because it's an emergency and you're trying to rescue somebody because they're about to die of poisoning. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that's the only reason to do an IV push. To do an IV like people dripping in IVs, I don't know that there's a huge benefit to that over taking it orally. And it's the same with these liposomal forms of vitamin C. I mean, oh, you have better absorption. The methylene blue is very well absorbed. I mean, you really don't have to, you know, try and guess whether it's absorbed or not. You're going to pee blue. I mean, it it's very clearly gets into your system to get into your urine. And so, you know, I've taken liposomal forms. I've done IV forms. I've done just regular forms. I don't see any big difference between them. You know, people like to do IVs because it's like, oh, we're going to get that in there. But I don't know with methylene blue. It's not like doing EDTA or some of these other things where, yeah, if you take it orally, it's just going to get digested. You have to do a liposomal form or do it IV or do it rectally to bypass the digestive tract. That's not really true. Methylene blue, as far as we know, it doesn't get digested. It gets absorbed. We pee it out and, and you know, like B12, it comes out the way it went in. All right. So let's talk results. So for me, it was definitely a lifting of the brain fog with the children with autism. What are the most immediate results that people are seeing? Well, you you just see more, I don't know how to describe it, but they're just more aware of their surroundings. Let's say, put it that way. You know, it's like they wake up. So they're more with it. They're more able to auto-regulate, you know, there's less stimming, and they're more aware of their surroundings, you know? So a lot of times when kids will come to my office for that first visit, you know, they're kind of bouncing off the walls. They're not, they're not necessarily uh, focused on what we're doing. I'm not saying that they're not paying attention because usually they are, it's just, you know, for them to pay attention, they can't look at me. They can't sit still, you know, it's just, that's the way the brain's working. So one of the things that happens is it calms them and makes them more aware. We tend to see less stimming. Uh, we've seen improvements in behaviors. They're less agitated and and always, you know, more attempts, depending on the age, more attempts at verbalizations and language and that sort of thing. So those are the big ones. You know, again, if you improve mitochondrial functioning, you improve brain functioning. That's why your brain fog lifted. And then, you know, it's antioxidants, anti-inflammatory, it's antiviral, it's antiparasitic, it's, you know, whatever else might be going on with the kid to help that. But those are the big ones. You see less stimming, they're more aware of the environment, they're calmer. And then, you know, again, you take it from there in terms of dosing. So let's back up for a minute for those that might be new to this whole conversation. So um, when we're talking about things like long COVID to Lyme disease, to autism, to PANS, PANDAS, any of these kinds of chronic disorders, 
where is the mitochondrial involvement? Because I know a lot of people talk about, you know, mitochondria and um, metabolic health and all of these things. But for a lot of people that kind of talks over their heads. So can we just back it up a little bit and talk about what that is exactly? I see you laughing. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, how much time we got? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> we can, okay, well, let's, let's talk about it. No, so, all right. So, Mitochondria are little organelles inside cells. In fact, we think at some point they were bacteria themselves and got captured by some early cell because they they can use oxygen and make energy, right? All higher life forms use oxygen to make energy because it's just a lot more efficient. You have to have something that'll do that for you, and that's the mitochondria. Oxygen is very, very damaging. We think of it as a positive thing, but most of the oxidative stress in our body comes from oxygen. So we have the mitochondria to make energy. That's one of the big things they make. It turns out the mitochondria do a lot of other things, but let's just stick with the energy part. So when you look at the brain, all right? So I always say the brain's an energy hog because it's maybe 1% of your body weight, but it's consuming at least 20% of all your energy. I mean, the brain's going to consume more energy than the heart. So anything that impacts mitochondrial functioning will impact how your brain works. So as an adult, if you get sick and your mitochondria stop working the way you're supposed to, you get brain fog, you memory, like, where am I? What's my name? You know, you, you, you just get very forgetful and you can't add two and two. And, and uh, you know, when you recover that, everything goes back to normal. And that's that's mitochondrial functioning. Now, when you're talking infection or inflammation, there is a process inside the cell that when you get an infection, it actually shuts down mitochondrial functioning. We call it the cell danger response. And that's why, I mean, we've all experienced this when you're coming down with like a flu or something like that, you know, the day before you get sick, where you wake up and you're achy and you're fever and runny nose and cough and all that, the day before you're really tired, all you want to do is sleep. And you can't put two and two together. You know, somebody, hey, can you do this or that? It's like, oh, not right now. I'll do it tomorrow. You know, because you can't think. That's actual brain dysfunction from inflammation disrupting mitochondria. So when we talk about what the methylene blue does, you know, why did it clear your brain fog? Well, you probably have chronic activation of that cell danger response. That's one of the reasons why your mitochondria weren't working the way they're supposed to. Again, you probably have other, you know, there's always genetics and toxicity and all that stuff involved with this as well. But let's just make it simple. You know, you've got this chronic Lyme condition. It's activating that cell danger response. That cell danger response is telling the mitochondria, don't, don't make energy the way you're supposed to which works fine if it's for three or four days, it doesn't work so fine it's for three or four years, right? And and it tells it, oh, no, don't make energy. And you're coming in with the methylene blue saying, mm, I beg to differ, let's make some energy, all right? And then all of a sudden, the clouds part and the sun shines through and it's like, oh, I can think and speak and all that. So that's really the, the effect of the mitochondria. There's some great lectures. There's a guy named Bob Navio, who uh, has spoken on this. He's the one that came up with these concepts. I mean, the man needs to win a Nobel Prize for figuring this stuff out because it really explains all of chronic illness. 
when you look at what happens, you know, people talk about, oh, I have oxidative stress. Oh, I have low glutathione. Oh, I have low vitamin D. Oh, I have this. Oh, I have that. So danger response, so danger response, so danger response, so danger response. You know, what are the symptoms of chronic Lyme? What are the symptoms of chronic mold? What are the symptoms of chronic whatever? So danger response, so danger response. You know, it explains about 80% of all the symptoms. And when you look at autism, list all the symptoms of autism. How many of those are from cell danger response? You know, a lot. And that that's why most of us that are dealing with biomedical approaches to autism are real familiar with mitochondrial function, real familiar with this concept of cell danger response. And this is a way to manipulate that, you know, to sidestep. Obviously, the better way is fix the underlying problem. Right. I don't think, you know, we were designed so that we all have to take methylene blue and have red light shining in our faces all day long. Right. You know, I, I think that there might be something else going on in our environment that's messing up our ability to deal with this stuff. Lime's been with us forever. I mean, you know, the bioweapon theory is another issue, but, you know, it's been with us forever. Why, why can't some people clear it? You know, a lot of us have had it. And it's the same with COVID. Right. I mean, Everybody got it, and this tiny fraction of people died from it. Mm -hmm. Most people got it as what runny nose for a few days. You know, what's the difference? And, you know, cell danger response has a lot to do with that. So, yeah, this is just kind of a little aside, but it was so interesting to me how so many people expressed symptomatology that was so different with COVID. You know, there were people who had more of the gut response, and then people who had more of the you know, lung, um, you know, function, you know, disrupted. And like, for me, it was body aches and crushing fatigue and night sweats and all of those kinds of things. But I never had any cough. I never had any lung issue, nothing like that, you know, and I do think that my weakness was most likely in the mitochondria. And then, you know, that, that spike protein just kind of took me down in a different way. So, is that something that you've seen as well? All of these varying kind of symptomatology, symptom pictures yeah. of, of COVID? Yeah, we, we've seen, you know, and, and again, it's, it's uh, I always say COVID and the COVID vaccine because the, the, the pathology is similar. I mean, right. the vaccine has some additional ingredients that have that, you know, they have their own issues, but both of these things are going to give you lots of spike protein and spike protein you know, if you inject spike protein all by itself into animals, it, it creates problems. So the thing about the virus is, you know, where do you have these ACE receptors? So yes, you have ACE receptors in your lungs. Yes, you have ACE receptors in your circulation and your heart. Yes, you have ACE receptors in your gut. And my experience with, with COVID, and I had early Delta, like March of 2021. And yeah, I had fever. I had severe brain fog and severe fatigue. And like, I probably slept 22 out of 24 hours, you know? And uh, so it was, I, it was the same experience you had. I mean, after two days, it was like, this brain fog better be get better because, you know, I'm supposed to see patients remotely in two or three days. I, I, I don't even know what day it is. You know, I can't see patients. I need my yeah. brain. And it cleared after three days, it cleared. And it was just, you know, that's how the cell danger response is supposed to work, right? I'm supposed to go to bed and sleep because that's how our immune system recharges and we deal with this stuff. But yeah, and, and this was always the, the million dollar question is, you know, is it invading the lungs of, of these people? Because it was the lungs that killed people, right? It was when you got that viral pneumonia 
that you set off the cytokine storm and then uh, you got overwhelming sepsis and, and you died. And that's also why aggressive early treatment was so important. And for some reason, they decided we're not going to do that with this virus, even though we've done it with every other infectious agent since the dawn of medicine, you know, uh, but we're not doing that with this virus. But so those of us where it never, you know, that second phase. So, you know, I, I was sick for about four days with, with uh, Delta and that was, you know, the first phase. And usually, you know, people would get through that sort of, and then the second phase would hit and they'd get the cough and the pneumonia. And that really depended on what else was going on with the person. And I, I don't know that they really figured all that out. There were a lot of theories as to why does this person affect that and this person doesn't. We know it's different with the strains. What made Delta so deadly is it went to the lungs very rapidly. You know, what makes Omicron not deadly is it doesn't have the capacity. It, it can't fuse uh, with the lung cells, so it can't actually cause, well, I shouldn't say it can't. It doesn't cause pneumonias almost always. That's why it's it's so benign. That whole Omicron lineage is like that. And that's, you know, again, that's one of the reasons why it just has morphed into something that's even less toxic than it was. The gut's interesting because the virus stays in the gut longer than anywhere else. And what's amazing to me is more people didn't have gut problems. You know, to me, I would expect it a lot more diarrhea and abdominal pain, loss of appetite, that sort of stuff. So even though the virus is there, we did not necessarily see a lot of problems. It did affect my gut too, though. Mm. I know the first couple, yeah, I lost like, I don't know, four or five pounds. And I went, well, this is a great weight loss program. And of course, I gained it all back. Yeah, and I gained I, it. Amazing. I don't have any Give me that strain. Just over it every couple of weeks. <laughs> So Dr. New, I know that you work a lot with children with autism and that you are also the president of um, MAPS. Now, MAPS have gone through several iterations. Um, originally, it was Dan, I believe, or maybe something even before that, but now known as the Medical Academy of Pediatric Special Needs, um, which can be found at medmaps.org. Tell me a little bit about that organization and what you guys are doing. Sure. Um, yeah. So originally there was Dan, there was Defeat Autism Now. And, and Dan was uh, the brainchild of a few of the pioneers of biomedical treatment, uh, the Bernie Rimlins uh, of the world that that said, this is not a psychiatric disorder. This is a, um, a biochemical problem. So he got together people like Sid Baker and some of the um, biochemistry guys that were doing the research and they started this. And the idea behind Dan was we're going to bring together researchers, parents, and practitioners. All right. So put everybody in the room, come up with some ideas because we had no idea what we were doing. Right. I mean, we got all these kids, the numbers are exploding. What the heck's going on? And then what do you do about it? So that was the idea behind Dan. Dan fell apart you know, having been involved with a lot of organizations, they all like to implode. <laughs> it's like people, there's all this infighting. And so Dan ended up falling apart. And so MAPS was born out of those ashes. Uh, and the idea behind MAPS is it, it was mainly practitioner oriented. And, you know, let's, let's present the latest evidence, the latest science-based evidence on how to treat kids on the spectrum. That was the idea behind it. So it was autism, ADD, neurodevelopmental delay, seizure disorders, that sort of stuff. Now, when I took it over, we sort of expanded it to just say, MAPS should be the go-to place for integrative pediatrics, period, right? Because the health of kids, God bless my pediatric 
colleagues, but the health of kids has just gone down the toilet. I mean, you know, under the tutelage of the American Academy of Pediatrics, it's it's gotten worse. It's gotten much, much worse than what it was even when I graduated from medical school in 1985. All right. So it's just really been horrible. So what's going on? Well, we don't know, but we that's what we try to figure out. We try to figure out how can we evaluate the kids sitting in front of us, regardless of what's going on. Right? Do they have autism? Do they have asthma? Do they have eczema? Do they have gut problems? Are they rashy? Uh, do they have allergies? You know what, what's going on with this kid? Uh, my kids had five ear infections. Why? Why? So that's part of what MAPS is all about. So we train clinicians, so MDs, DOs, nurse practitioners, naturopaths, chiropractors. Uh, nutritionists, dietitians, you know, basically if you're seeing kids and you have a certificate hanging on the wall that says you have some sort of license, then you're welcome at MAPS. So that's what we're doing right now. We are in the process of partnering with parent organizations. So even for those, you know, medmaps.org is our website. If you go there, you know, uh, and register, you become part of the family. And if you're a practitioner, we have a fellowship. We we sort of teach all these concepts. We do two conferences a year. We just did our fall conference uh, two weeks ago, one week ago. I don't know. You lose I think two. it was two. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> the weekend after Labor Day, whenever that was. I've, I've been to a few places since then, so I'm a little bit <laughs> travel weary. But so the the we do one in the spring. Uh, usually it's over St. Patty's Day. So our next one's going to be in Charlotte, I believe the 14th through 16th of March or something like that. And then we do one and, and that one's on the East Coast. So it's going to be in Charlotte next year. And then we do a West Coast conference. Uh, the last one we did was in uh, Scottsdale. And again, we're trying to bring together people. It's a three-day conference. The first day we do our sort of, hey, this is intro to maps. Uh, this is what we're going to cover. Uh, we do the first and the last course of the fellowship. And then for three days, we do whatever the topic might be. This particular topic was on mold toxicity and then toxicity in general. So uh, very well received, a big problem. Um, so that that's what we do. And then, we're like I said, we're partnering with, with other organizations. Uh, so we're partnering with the MIND people in Australia. They, they have a great website. They do parent education. We're um, partnering with Documenting Hope. They were having a conference in, in November down in uh, Orlando. Uh, so we're trying to reach out and 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 partner with other organizations. And then we're looking at, I mean, we're going to be presenting at the Lyme Association, ILADS meeting uh, on pediatric Lyme. Uh, we're trying to partner with the FLCCC on, you know, the pediatric aspects of, of COVID, long COVID, COVID vaccine injuries, and uh, trying to partner with A4M. You know, they're, they're uh, doing some pediatric conferences and it's like, well, you know, we can certainly come in and, and offer that piece. So we're really trying to position MAPS to be like the go-to place for integrative pediatrics. And then we do have a fellowship program. We keep a list of all our practitioners. So our website is functioning. So you can actually go there and look at, you know, people that have been to MAPS conferences, people that are MAPS fellows, you know, and we're trying to get it so that it lets people know, you know, what level of education they've had with MAPS. Because some people have been to one conference. Some people like me have been there since 2012 when we started it up. So that's where we're at now. And and it's really nice because it, it's um, just a different energy than what it was. So anybody that's been to a MAPS conference should come back because it, it's just a completely different energy. Very exciting. There's a lot of 
community involved there. It's more like a family than anything else. So even when we bicker, it's like bickering in your family. We're, we're not stabbing each other in the back. And we're all there because we're trying to figure out better ways to, to treat our kids. You know, treat the ones that have the symptoms and then figure out ways to stop it from in the, happening in the first place, right? Because there are reasons why our kids are getting sicker. What can we do about that? Like I said, we shouldn't even have to have a conversation on methylene blue unless you want to say, hey, I just ate too many hot dogs at the baseball game. What can I do about that? <laughs> I'll take some methylene blue. But outside of that, I mean, why, why should we be talking antidotes? We should be talking solutions so that you don't need the antidote in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so... I'm a practicing homeopath, about 80% of my clients are children with autism, pans and pandas. And that stemmed out of my, my own son's diagnosis about 10 years ago. And um, by the way, he's completely unvaccinated. So, you know, there was a lot of, especially at that time, a lot of talk about autism correlation with vaccines, um, pans, pandas, same thing. And so I felt very alone in my journey because I, I didn't, there was no explanation or no, you know, medical explanation for why my child had developed, you know, a very severe actually case of PANS, um, which we later found out was, was Lyme. But, um, you know, all of these things are very much connected. And so I really appreciate what you guys are doing over at MAPS because it's, it's a broader spectrum. I think uh, so many of the organizations have been very you know, laser focused on autism and autism diagnosis and um, vaccine injury for good reason. But I, th I do think the majority of, you know, kids that are coming out have way more issues than just vaccine injury, you know, and, and so many of the kids that I treat, I don't know if this is because I'm a homeopath or because, you know, this was my own experience, but a lot of the people coming to me um, also have children who were totally unvaccinated and still wound up with autism or pans pandas. So, so I think there's a, there's a broader conversation that needs to happen. And from what it sounds like that is happening at MAPS. So I, I very much appreciate that approach. Uh, I think it's very much needed in this community. Right. And we're just to let you know, I mean, this, this is what I said, we're a family and we're family. It, we don't all think the same way. You know, there are members of MAPS that think that, that vaccines have nothing to do with autism. You know, and there are those of us that just, you know, most of us realize that autism, pans, pandas, you know, all these neuroinflammation disorders, and even asthma and eczema and all these immune system dysfunctions is all dysregulated immune response, regardless of which diagnosis you want to give it. That's what it's really about, that it's related to toxins, you know, mm -hmm. environmental toxins and chronic immune activation. And then, you know, what caused that? Well, vaccines in my mind at least, are one of the things that can cause that. I mean, it's if you look at what a vaccine does, it's designed to activate the immune system. I mean, it's it doesn't, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out a connection. But I'll agree with you. I have patients that are completely unvaccinated who have autism, right? So it's not the cause of autism. You know, is it a cause of autism? Probably. You know, you, you can't do the research because you'll be ostracized because, you know, we have this whole vaccines are safe and effective mantra going on with our government, they won't research it. You know, they just published a study a few months ago showing the aluminum in vaccines was linked to asthma. But even then, you know, the raw data said four to five fold increased risk for the dose of aluminum that kids get on the schedule. 
They somehow doctored that down to double the risk. And then they divided that up into, because that's four milligrams of aluminum that kids get on the spectrum. They divided it up into risk per milligram of aluminum. So that's 26%. That's what they presented at the CDC at the ASAP meeting, right? 26% increased risk of asthma per milligram of aluminum. And then the people on the committee are like, oh, well, that's very reassuring. You know, it's only 26%. It's like, dude, how many milligrams are you administering? You know, it's four, you know? I mean, I'm not a pediatrician. I know that, right? So what's four times 26? I mean, come on, it's, you're doubling the risk. Yeah, your data, right? That's after they took the raw data and figured out how to manipulate it. But that that's the best they could do. And even with that, it doubled the risk of asthma. Now, is doubling the risk of asthma worth the benefit you get from the vaccine? That's the million dollar question. And nobody's even looking at that. So, you know, you come to MAPS, we're not going to sit there and tell you don't vaccinate, don't vaccinate, don't vaccinate. What we are going to tell you is this is what has happened. And this is what happens when you activate the immune system. We don't say, you know, pregnant women shouldn't get flu shots or DPT shots or COVID vaccines, but we do say this is what happens when you activate the maternal immune system. And then you have to decide, you know, what's the benefit of this? And that's the equation, you know, anytime we're talking about a drug, it's always risk benefit. But with vaccines, there's no risk. You know, that's the problem. Thinking human being could come to the table and say, I have a medical intervention and there's no risk. Who's going to believe that person? And yet that's what we have with the vaccines. Because if they don't study the risk, I mean, they're terrified. They're terrified that if they if they show that the vaccine, you know, increases your risk of autism by whatever percentage, that everybody will stop vaccinating with all die of polio. I mean, that really is what it comes down to, right? And And so how can I make an intelligent decision if you're not going to give me the data and you're just going to have the church of vaccines with the religion and the mantra of safe and effective, right? Yeah. Lord yeah. I, I call it scientism. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, we have the videos, right? We have people like Catherine Edwards, who's, you know, one of the, the goddesses of, of uh, vaccines. She, her name, she's one of the editors of the, you know, Plotkin vaccine book, which yep. is the Bible of vaccines. And, you know, under oath, she had to, you know, she said when, when she was asked, you know, scientifically proven beyond doubt, blah, 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 do vaccines cause autism? Absolutely. Scientifically proven, they do not cause autism, right? And then, you know, does a DTAP and does the polio and does a, do, each one, do they scientifically proven beyond the shadow of doubt? Does it cause autism? No, 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 no. And yet when asked for evidence, do you have the study that shows that the Tdap doesn't cause autism? No, I don't. Do you have the study that the polio vaccine doesn't cause autism? No, I don't. Do you have the study that the Prevnar vaccine doesn't cause autism? No, I don't. So no science showing that it doesn't cause autism. And yet she knows definitively, scientifically proven that it doesn't cause autism. That's religion. I mean, you can you can have your beliefs, but you should be broadcasting them as beliefs. This is not scientifically proven. Mm -hmm. It's a belief system that we've all been brainwashed into. And, and unfortunately, we're trying to look at what's the evidence. And as soon as you start looking at evidence, oh, my God, you're, you know, you're banned from Facebook and you lose your, well, Twitter's back for a while anyway. Uh, you know, you lose your Twitter <laughs> handles, your, you know, all your YouTube videos disappear. And 
Yeah. I mean, I used to, when people say, well, what do you do? I said, just look me up on YouTube. Not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's all gone. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. and, and that's, you know, that's the nature of where we're at. But the bottom line with it is we have a problem with inflammation and we have a problem with toxicity. Yes. Right? So chronic Lyme is really a chronic immune activation. Right. Where there's a bug involved. But most of the treatment for chronic Lyme, as I'm sure you're aware, is not about killing the bug. It's mm-hmm. about improving that immune response and, and getting that back on track. You know, right. if you can do that, all the symptoms go away. Right. And that's why for me, you know, when I first started researching about how to help my son, you know, this idea of, you know, antibiotics until the age of 18 prophylactically didn't make sense. You know, I, I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, it seems like he's he's constantly having this, you know, immune response. And so wouldn't I wouldn't it be better for me to look further up the chain instead of just trying to kill off pathogen over and over and over again? And, you know, I I've honestly seen I run a fairly large um, Facebook group of parents and uh you know, I've seen a lot of that, you know, people who uh, go into this, you know, with a, a very rigid kind of perspective of, you know, we'll just treat it with antibiotics. And unfortunately, without the, you know, reconstruction of the gut microbiome, without the reconstruction of, you know, um, the immune system on board, they're not getting anywhere, unfortunately. And this is, this is, where I come from, you know, because I'm, I, I always say I'm the schizophrenic tree hugging doctor because I do prescribe antibiotics. Sorry, but I do. But I don't think that that's the solution because, and the reason why I prescribe antibiotics, like chronic Lyme, like why on God's earth would you prescribe antibiotics for chronic Lyme? Why? Because I've had people come to my office and I put them on a month of antibiotics and 10 years of symptoms go away. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't I offer that to my patient if it's within my power to do that? Now, I know that that's not the only thing I'm going to do, but I have that to offer. And it's the same with, with pans and pandas. You know, if it's viral and I use an antiviral and the kid gets better, I use an antibiotic because it's strep or it's, or it's Lyme or something like that. And the kid gets better then to me, that's worthwhile. But I understand that's not the solution. It's right. a band-aid for the problem. And you still have to get under the surface. And you're right. It's almost always the gut that we're working on to rebalance the immune response because the immune system lives in that gut. Uh, so we're trying to rebalance that immune response. And by doing that, we can keep things under control. One of the things that I preach is all the things that we use for Lyme for kids, will screw up the gut, except methylene blue. Yeah, methylene blue, unless you give really high doses, doesn't mess with the gut ecosystem. I think that's a, a perfect <laughs> note now to segue into our eight questions. So for those of you who've been with us before, we have eight rapid fire questions. We ask every single one of our guests to get to know them a little bit better and a little bit outside all of this, you know, medical, very uh, scientific speak. So Dr. New, Uh if you could choose only one natural remedy for the rest of your life, what would it be? Glutathione. Glutathione. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Number two, tell us something most people don't know about you. Wow. Uh, how about this? There are only two things in this world that will make me cry. Really beautiful things, whether it's art, it's poetry, it's music, something like that. And autism moms. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Otherwise, we have a rule in my office. No crying. <laughs> stuff it down. Stuff it down. Uh, I love that. All right. If I were to compile a playlist of happy music, what song would you suggest be added? Wow. Happy music. I think anything by the monkeys. How's that? Go back to the 60s. Get some of that bippy happy music. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. All right. So uh, what is your favorite guilty pleasure? Oh, my God. That's actually really good tequila. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, I actually... Really, I, I can't afford it very often, but... <laughs> Uh, well, well, one of these days that happens to be, uh, one of the only things I indulge in maybe once or twice a month or so, but <laughs> not very often. All right. Um, okay. What's the most influential book you've ever read? That's so hard because it's like, what part of my life are we talking about here? You know, because <laughs> if you're talking like it, it probably has to be a book on relationships called, getting the love you want. Hmm. This was the guy that was supposed to be Oprah's uh, psychologist guy until his wife said, no, you're not going on TV. So, but it, it's, it's, it's one of the best books on relationships. And, and the reason for that is it's helped me immensely personally, but most of my patients, I mean, you have parent, you know, what's the divorce rate for parents with kids on the autism spectrum and the, and the kid that's, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that, and that's part of yeah. the pathology with the kid too, you know. So that's one of the it's one of the best books ever written on uh, relationships, and and it's it's one of the things that transformed my life. There's a million other books. I, I, I that's an unfair question. <laughs> I know. I I actually would have struggled with that question myself. So, all right, <laughs> what does the word revolution mean to you? <laughs> uh, to me. Revolution is something that detoxifies a steady state that doesn't work, you know, and it is whether it's a thought revolution, it's a treatment revolution, or it's a guns ablazing revolution. It's, it's what happens on a regular basis when things get stuck in a mode that doesn't work. And unfortunately, that's where we're at right now. Yeah, yeah. And then what does the word remedy mean to you? Hmm. Wow. Those are good questions. Make me think. <laughs> I know. It, it's early for those of you listening. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, a, a remedy, remedy in my world is something that will assist the body. And by the body, I mean, you know, body, mind, spirit to move in the direction that it's supposed to move in. And, and remedy doesn't necessarily mean... I'm going to take something that's going to get rid of all my symptoms, uh, nor does a remedy necessarily mean that it's going to cure me of all my symptoms. So if I have terminal cancer and I'm terrified of dying and somebody says, oh, you know, you should do um, psilocybin. So the psilocybin is going to do nothing for my terminal cancer. I'm still going to die of cancer, but it'll give me a completely different outlook on my life and where I'm at, and my fear of dying, that's a remedy, right? So that's what it means to me. Is I mean, to me, it's never something that's there to cure. It's there to work with the body, mind, spirit to move us to where we're supposed to go. It's like a homeopath speaking. 
I trained in homeopathy. <laughs> I don't know right. personally, but I did train in homeopathy. Uh, if you could impart one piece of wisdom onto our listeners, what would that be? Do your research, learn for yourself. I mean, don't don't trust me. Don't trust anybody out there. We're we're you know, we're speaking from our own biases, from what we've learned, from our, you know, most of us, fortunately, I have a wife that beats me up every day. But, you know, most of us don't realize what we don't realize. Most of us have, I mean, first of all, we tend to have big egos, but we we think we know things simply because we've always said it. And my wife's one of those people that says, really, where'd you learn that? You know, and then I have to go prove it. And then I go, well, holy crap, that's not true, right? So, you know, don't trust what we say. Don't trust what you read in a book. Do your own research. The beautiful thing about the internet is, you know, there's PubMed. There are, there are places where you can get journal articles that you can read. Now you got to figure out what's crap and what isn't, and that's another story. But, you know, use that inner voice, that discernment that we all have. I mean, I was just listening to... um an interview they had on the high wire yesterday with um, the guy from big and rich who I just John- listened to that yesterday. <laughs> I yeah. I love that man. I'm trying yeah. to get all my money to his bank. <laughs> anyway. So this was um, one of the things he said is he prays every day for discernment. Right. And, and that's one of the things that I think is very helpful that we all have this inner voice. So, you know, we read something, we hear something and this little voice inside our head says that doesn't sound quite right. Right research it, look at it and, and read both sides. You know, that, that's the other thing that, you know, especially people on my side of the fence, they're just going to go research things to support their point of view. That's, that's not research. You, you really have to read both sides. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, just such amazing advice, especially in, in today's era. I think it's more important now than ever before. Well, Dr. New, thank you so much for coming on to the Remedy Revolution. We always appreciate all of your uh, expertise and advice and uh, some fun little tidbits there at the end. Uh, For those of you looking for more information about MAPS, please visit medmaps.org. Dr. New practices in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and uh, his website is bioenergymedicalcenter.com. Thank you so much, Dr. New. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care. For you